Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. Good morning, Carly and Cece. Let's be diving into our Books with Hooks segment. Carly, why don't you start us off with the first query letter? Here we go. Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, I'm seeking representation for my hashtag MeToo novel, Title A, a work of upmarket women's fiction, completed 80,000 words. Highlighting the damage caused by misogyny, it blends the harrowing adolescence of Amber Smith the way I used to be with the headstrong voice of womanhood in Friends and Strangers. Based on your interest in feminist stories and complicated family dynamics, I believe Title A will appeal to you. 21-year-old Lauren saves every penny she earns for the breast reduction she hopes will stop the unwanted comments from men. Growing up under the thumb of a misogynistic father and a predatory brother, she wants nothing more than to leave small-town Ohio and pursue culinary school. When that happens, Lauren's mindset is clear. Focus on career, forget about men. That is, until she meets Mitch, a guy who shares her passion for all things confectionery and who talks to her face instead of her chest. For 10 years, and their marriage is good, except for one aspect, sex. Lauren's history of trauma, including childhood abuse, sexual harassment, and her best friend's 
unspeakable betrayal block her husband's attempt at intimacy. Therapy comes in the form of counseling and cupcakes as Lauren and Mitch navigate deeply rooted wounds. Lauren's true love, baking, is where she finds solace in her sugary sugar artistry. If her marriage is to survive, Lauren must decide what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal world. I'm a college instructor and mom to three young children living in Pennsylvania. My previous works include two self-published novels and many personal reported essays per site, including The Washington Post, HuffPost, Today's Parent, Motherly, and more. I'm currently hard at work on my next book. I would be thrilled to send you title A in part or in full for your review. Thank you for considering this a marriage story meets chocolat story, a raw yet hopeful topic that is not only timely, but painfully familiar. Sincerely, author A. Awesome. Carly, thank you so much. Cece, what did you think of the query letter? So I really enjoyed this query letter. This author has queried me before, and I remember actually reading her pages. And once we get to the pages, I'll, I'll talk more about this, but her beginning changed. Like she's starting her, st- her story at a different spot now. And it's interesting because her story stayed with me, right? Because I read so many queries and I could remember this one really well. It's really well written. Um, she's giving us everything she's supposed to. She's giving us comp. She's giving us the word count. Um, obviously, the title is redacted here, but I'm really interested in Me Too stories. It's it's something that I, I enjoy personally and that I think we need more of. I know that people think we have enough of it and we do have a lot, but um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of Me Too that we haven't explored yet, especially aspects that deal with intersectionality. And I very much am into all of that and I want to represent books like that. So the, the challenge here, obviously, this is good enough for me to request because I request in pages. The challenge for me as I read this, and I, I remember thinking, thinking about this last time as well, is that the plot seems very quiet. There's um, two body paragraphs that deal with the plot and they're very well written. And I can see that these are important, timely things that we should be discussing. And as a woman, I personally get it, right? Like I I am invested in this myself, in, in this journey inwards. And I think it's intentional that the plot is quiet and it's portrayed as quiet. But for sellability, a quiet plot is hard, not impossible. There's lots of quiet books out there, but it's something that we should talk about, right? Like it's... You, you know, Carly, Carly always says this, we sell a book based on plot and it's true. So that's one of the challenges here. And then, you know, the other thing I, I should add is that I remember that the number one reason why I, I asked to see these pages wasn't even the Me Too angle. It was the fact that um, she mentioned Friends and Strangers by J. Courtney Sullivan. J. Courtney Sullivan is one of my favorite authors. Don't ask me to pick between Maine and Commencement because I can't. I love both of them equally, but I love all of her novels and, and she's a really wonderful writer. So, so yeah, this is great. I think the author has really clearly worked very hard on this. I, I do think the challenge here is the quiet plot from, from like a query letter perspective alone. We'll get to the pages in a sec. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? I really liked the setup. I thought it was really well done. I liked the breast reduction angle. I thought that's something that I don't see covered a lot in fiction. And I was pleasantly surprised um, at that angle. And I think it's very valid and interesting. It's something that definitely caught my attention. And so this one, it was tough for me because we have the past or the present, I guess, the 21-year-old boy. And then we moved 10 years into the future. And so I had a lot of questions about like, when does this book actually begin? What is the actual story? What is set up versus what is actually the story of this book? It just seemed like we, like the author maybe thought maybe for pitching purposes, they wanted to cover these two more interesting points in their life or for the book itself. Like these are the two things that we're covering. I'm not clear on if it's like part one is in the 21 year old voice. And then part two is in a 31 year old voice. Like I just have a lot of questions about the actual 
actual setup of this based on this two, this kind of like 21 year old, 31 year old setup. But other than that, I think it's interesting. I just have a lot of questions about where this project is going. The one thing that I I would probably take out, and I know Cece spoke about the, the hashtag me too and everything like that being an interesting, you know, setup and hook and um and something that she wants more of. And I totally agree, but I would cut the line that says if her marriage is to survive, Lauren must decide what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal world. Because number one, it's just kind of like hitting us over the head when you already said, you know, this is a hashtag me too novel. We get it. And we all live in a patriarchal society. So it's like we're just that is existing um in, in today's world. So I think that that would be a line that I would cut. I also felt like we had double the comps. We had Amber Smith the way I used to be and then Friends and Strangers. And at the bottom we have Marriage Story Meets Chocolate. I like the marriage story meets chocolate better personally. And I don't think we need more comps. So I would probably figure out a way to smooth that out. But um but yeah I think this is a unique hook that I haven't seen in a while. Carla, do you think she should remove the Me Too reference because there's like the market is inundated with Me Too stories and like probably other than me, everyone else will look at this and think we have too many. Is that a thing? What do you think? That's a really good question. I hate, absolutely hate saying this and I don't like it coming out of my mouth, but the hashtag Me Too movement like started how many years ago now? Like four years ago. And it's not that we're post Me Too. I don't believe that we're post Me Too, but we have come farther since then. And I think the conversations are a bit more nuanced. So by calling something a hashtag Me Too novel, does it place itself four years in the past? Like it kind of does because it's it's talking about a, a hashtag that was trending four years ago, even though it's a movement that still exists today. So I think that's a complicated question and I don't have a clear answer. I would probably, the fact that we're both kind of questioning this and dancing around it and I'm saying, you know, cut out patriarchal world comment. I'm thinking we could probably cut the hashtag Me Too novel because everything else is working for this novel to do what that hashtag does. Do you know what I mean? And the hashtag is almost redundant at the point when you say, you know, this is a feminist story. Anyway, everything this this query is doing and everything this book is about tells us it's a Me Too novel without having to tell us a Me Too novel. So I would say you could do one or the other. So I totally get what you're saying. And I think the reason why I asked is because it occurred to me. And I also, like I shared that sentiment so much, I also don't like it coming out of my mouth, but you know, in the author's best interest, and we're, we're all authors advocates here, it's possible that people would read this and think it was reductive because, and it's not that it is, but to call a novel a Me Too novel, you're pigeonholing it. And it has been so many years. And so I think that, yeah, I think that to the author, it might be something to consider, not because Me Too isn't important because it so is. Yeah, I think that it might be, might be in your best interest to just cut it because we don't want it to be reductive. We don't want your novel to, to seem like it's a Me Too novel. And we will understand that without you having to say it. With hashtag Me Too, it's not something that is going to be on your book jacket. So therefore, it's not really something that you need to query an agent with at this point either. So it is a little bit reductive. And so I would probably say we don't need it. Okay, wonderful. And and something else that I would like to ask as well. So Cece was saying it seems quiet on the plot. And this has been pitched as upmarket fiction. So can can we just talk a bit about the difference between literary fiction, book club fiction, upmarket fiction? Because my understanding is that literary fiction is where you can be quieter on the plot because that's more like a character study, et cetera, et cetera, being more experimental with language and form and structure and those things. So then plot isn't that important. But am I right in saying that when it comes to upmarket fiction and book club fiction, plot is certainly as, as important as characterization? CC? For me, it definitely is. Literary fiction is 
is all about the writing. Um, you keep turning the pages because you just want to digest those beautiful sentences and they move you. And I, I listen to a lot of books, but I don't listen to literary fiction unless I've already read the book because I like to read and I just keep reading the same sentence over and over again because it's so beautiful. And you can't pause, like you can, but it's really awkward to pause an audiobook and then go back. And and I think that, you know, upmarket fiction is has more of a hook, is more commercial, and it's still really, really well written, but you're not reading it for the sentences. I think that what keeps you turning the pages is a good question to ask. Like, why, why do you want your readers to keep on turning the pages? And I just want to say every author wants to be literary and commercial. Whenever I ask this question to someone, like when I get a novel that's like right like in the, in, in the middle and I ask them like, do you want this to be more literary? Do you want this to be more commercial? What's your vision? They always say, well, I want it to be both. And I'm like, I know, I know, I get it. Everyone wants it to be both. And it can appeal to both audiences, but it is important to have a good uh, state of where of where your novel is in in the spectrum. So I would say that because this was pitched as upmarket, I was expecting something a bit more plot driven. This is from my taste. I don't know. What do you think, Carly? I agree. I agree with everything um, everyone's saying. Bianca, I think your analysis is correct. Cece, I think your perspective is also correct. I feel like the, the lines are also changing. Like if you asked me this question five, 10 years ago, I probably would have given you a different answer because I think the industry is trending in a more upmarket direction. Like what used to be called literary is getting more literary. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of literary authors are writing with, with bigger hooks. And so that is turning into something that's more a market. So I think the lines are getting more and more blurred, but ultimately literary fiction, I, I call it kind of capital L literary fiction, things that are leaning more towards being more award centric, definitely more telling in terms of the line level and the actual artistry of the words and the craft itself, where, as Cece said, we're, we're turning the pages because we want to you know, just master in this craft, right? And with commercial fiction, we're turning the pages because we want to revel in the plot. And <laughs> we're just like inhaling this plot in a, in a more cinematic way. And then upmarket, again, like Cece said, everybody wants to be in this sweet, we call it in the industry, the quote unquote sweet spot in the middle, right? Because you kind of get to do both. And I think a lot of authors think of themselves as upmarket, but upmarket means different things to different people, right? You ask us on this podcast, we're all saying different things. You ask editors, they mean different things. And the, the market itself, the bookseller, you know, the librarians, every, everybody has a different definition of what this is. But to me, an upmarket novel is the, the, the book club book, right? The best of all of the worlds. It has the absolutely compelling page turning plot. It has sophisticated book club type questions where we're able to kind of grapple with the meaning of life and in relationships and human existence. But it has a plot to be able to hinge all those questions on. And it has this beautiful lyrical page turning structure in terms of us just being really compelled by, by the, the itself. So that's kind of my long-winded way of saying, ask me next year and I'll have a different. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay. Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? Okay. So I know that the author is playing around with where to begin the story. Um, like I said, she queried me. I remember the previous beginning. It was um, the protagonist meeting her dad at a restaurant and it was her birthday. And she was like thinking about what she should order. And she was overthinking it a lot. And she was like, I should probably just get a salad or something like something light 
And then her dad was teasing her about like, like, don't you're getting a salad on your birthday. And then she was like, oh my God, I can never get it right. Like if I had ordered like a burger, he would have, you know, body shamed me and now I'm ordering a salad. So now he's like teasing me. And so I remember it. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this because books that stay with you, it shows that you're really on the right path. Right. And this is, this is great. I still think, however, that you're not starting in the right place. Um, so for the listener, we have our protagonist, uh, Lauren or Loren. I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. She is baking and we have beautiful description, really, really well written of her kneading the dough and, you know, to make lemon tarts. And you can see that she really, really loves to bake, that baking is her therapy. I will say, so a few notes. So note, my, my first note is that we are kind of getting a bit too much of the I love baking, baking is my refuge. I would say trust your reader. We talk about trusting your reader all the time in Books with Hooks. Um, we know there are way too many references to baking being the saving grace. And I think that there's there's an analogy. There's a moment where she's looking at the pie and she's she thinks, why was it always the outside that got noticed, like the outside of the pie? After all, the best part of the lemon tarts was the um, tangy center, sort of like how there was a lot more to her than just her boobs. And I do like the the, the breast reduction angle of this too, but, but here's the thing. People notice the outside of the pie because they can see the outside of the pie. Like no one's looking at the inside because it hasn't been cut yet. And people really care about the taste of the pie. So I think that analogy was like, I think it was trying a little too hard. I don't think we should. It just, it just didn't land for me, for my taste. And then there's dialogue, right? Like her, her brother comes in and she talks about how she's going to tell her dad that she's not going to finish business school and that she's going to culinary school. And her brother's like, well, are you sure you only have one more year to go? You know, he won't be happy. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure. I thought that we don't need need to know about the conversation you're going to have. Like, it's like a conversation in a conversation. And that's just, it's just dragging the pace. Like maybe is the conversation with the dad, the relevant thing, then just start with that. Or maybe just start with her first day in culinary school. And then like two carefully placed lines about how her dad was, was disappointed in her. And that she wasn't going to let the disappointment ruin her first day. That could be enough of a backstory. I don't know how relevant it is that we know about her dad's disappointment, that she's not going to stay in the family business. So obviously I don't know enough about the book, but I still don't think that like listening to a conversation, about a conversation is is the best place to start. Fewer the notes. She went in talking to her brother. She mentions, for example, her friend is. I think that's um, yeah, that's her name. And a lot of authors fall into this trap, which is you introduce a person. In this case, it's Izzy, and you think, oh my god, I have to tell the reader who this person is. And then she tells us she tells us that Izzy is her best friend in like three different places. Her heart warmed at the thought of her best friend, and and then you know in dialogue we also hear that she's her best friend. And it's, again, well done, well written. The author didn't just dump this. I could tell that this is carefully structured, but it's it's a lot of repetition. And the real estate in, in the beginning of your book is the most valuable thing, like arguably the most important thing because you're trying to hook people. And as soon as people are hooked, they'll stay with you and they won't let go, but you have to hook them first. And so we just don't need to know, you don't need to explain everything. You can just talk about Izzy and we'll figure out that she's your best friend. And actually, if we assume Izzy is a sister and later on we find out that she's a best friend. That's okay too. The reader will make assumptions that are in the neighborhood of what you're trying to say, not even trying to say them, but in the neighborhood of the reality of your story. And then those assumptions will be will, will, will be adjust as, as adjusted as we read the story. And that's and that's totally normal. So I I think that there's there's a lot to work with here. And it's clearly a strong like hook, the fact that she has this breast reduction and the fact that she's 
a male magnet for her dad's um, family business. That's how she calls herself. But I still don't think it's starting in the right spot. Like it's not going as fast as I would want it to go. And then as a final note, here's the thing with, and I had this conversation with, with the lovely writer who might be listening to this the other day. She also paired me and we talked about, I gave her an R&R. She's a fan of the podcast. But here's the thing. When you're establishing stakes for your protagonist, many people think that, oh, all I have to do is give her lots of problems, right? Like she, if she has a lot of problems, that translates to stakes. And yes and no, because you're supposed to pick problems or, or whatever you're picking that incite curiosity, right? Like you want your reader to be curious. And this lovely, lovely person has kind of like major first world problems. She, she's young, she's gorgeous. Like her beauty is this huge magnet thing, right? Like, and I know that that can be a real, really bad thing. It clearly is here, but, but let's just be honest here. Like we live in a world where having beauty is, is, is typically a good thing. Just like having money is typically a good thing, even though of course it can be a bad thing as well, but she has all these wonderful things and she's going, she's really young and she's going to culinary school. And like the worst case scenario, she just has to get a part-time job to help pay for expenses because her dad won't, won't cover her bills. And that's not really something that I'm like worried for her. Like the best case scenario, it makes people go, meh, cry me a river. Like, I'm not like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you don't really have problems. Worst case scenario, it makes people really envious, like, and resentful almost. So I would think, is this intentional? Like, do you want to write a story where this person has everything and she's still not happy with it? Because if it is, that's great. Keep it. All that matters is that it's your intention. Emily Giffen does this. Usually her protagonists have like the best first world problems. There's a book and I'm told it's one of her oldest ones. It's not hard of the matter. It's another one where that's what it is. And she does it. She, she gets away with it. She does it really well. So if that's her intention, do it. But I would, I would rethink the problems if it's not your intention. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? I definitely agree with Cece's full analysis. And because this is a kind of a critique podcast, we're going to be critiquing, but I do want to preface any of my notes as always by saying, you know, whenever we talk about something a lot, it's because there's a lot to work with. So here we go. I felt like this was a very kind of leading conversation, a very let's handhold the reader and, and take them where we want to go. Because everything from explaining the best friend to the dialogue between the siblings really felt like the author was trying to guide us where they wanted us to go. And that feels challenging to the reader in a not good way because it's making the reader feel like the author doesn't trust us to kind of figure out where we're going to go. And so I don't think this is necessarily always a sign of, you know, a debut writer doing doing newbie things. I think sometimes it's just the author is just trying to figure out where to send us and, and how to carry us through this book in a way that accomplishes the goals of what the author wants to do while trying to make the plot happen. So, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples of, of where I think things are pretty leading. So there's something that says, you know, bet you it is are going nuts, not seeing each other for so long. Three phone calls a day has helped. Lawrence stick duck out her tongue. Probably better this way. Having your horror stories about best friends rooming together only to have a major falling out. It's like the friendship kiss of death. Anyway, at least we both chose Ohio schools. It's only two hours away. Uh, yeah, but 16 weeks is a long time, which is why tomorrow can't come soon enough. So this little like sibling banter, like I love sibling banter, but it did feel like this, the whole purpose of this conversation was to recount things that we kind of already knew or the siblings already knew. So why would you have a conversation with your brother in real time about things that you guys already know? And that, so that felt like you were just doing it for the sake of the reader. Another example is, she says, I just can't do it anymore, Lauren continued. I'm meant to be in culinary 
culinary school. I shouldn't have wasted these last three years in the first place. You know, it's never what I wanted. And so if he knows it's what she never wanted, then why are we having this conversation? <laughs> Unless it's for the sake of the reader itself. So those are a couple examples, you know, just so you know, of, of ways that I'm feeling handheld like, um, in, a, in a not productive way. What I really did like was the, the last bit of these five pages. It hadn't been the first time people, including our family, had commented on her appearance, you know, all of, all of that sort of stuff I, I really liked. And the whole, you know, concept of by the, by the time she was in the third grade, Lauren understood the power of beauty. I think that is a very interesting coming of age trope, you know, when girls figure out if they are pretty or if they're not pretty by traditional standards and, and what that means for their place in society. I think that's really interesting. So I think we're getting to where we need to go. But I did feel like, um, like, you know, I was just being led by the author. One thing I also wanted to mention, I recently did um, an Instagram post about dialogue and making sure that we don't repeat things in dialogue that already happened in the plot. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Cece, do you want to read the next one? Dear Carly and Cecilia, I'm reaching out as I've listened to all of your books with hooks podcast episodes with Bianca Moray, as well as quietly lurking on Twitter and Instagram. And I hope my novel may be a fit for the type of manuscript you are looking to represent. Name Redacted is commercial fiction that leans literary and is complete at 75,000 words. If Running With Scissors walked into a bar and met Goodbye Vitamin, this would be it. Here's the story. Alison Holden is having the worst year of her life. An amateur web sleuth, she's trying her best to be a good mom while writing a book about the disappearance of her aunt's best friend 35 years ago. Then her world starts falling apart. In a single year, her beloved Mumu dies, her children are diagnosed with common variable immune deficiency, and she discovers she has lupus. Her parents move in, and in short order, her dad is in a horrific car accident. Then her whole family starts moving in to help. Meanwhile, the only thing keeping Allison sane is working on her true crime novel. When the case she's worked on so hard is solved by her friend and fellow web sleuth, her book deal falls through and her dreams are dashed. Then her husband quits his job to follow his passion for solar-powered cars, and her family members end up in the hospital one by one. Prioritizing her family above all else, Allison heads out to make her grand gesture that will save the day. However, on her way, she becomes a true crime victim herself. In order to survive, Allison has to figure out how to hold on when everything is falling apart. This is an own voices story as my oldest son has common variable immune deficiency and I have lupus. While the book is hopefully representative of these issues, they do not define the book's themes, which are about family and how much we give and ultimately get when we love. I'm interested in exploring how sometimes you have to hold fast to what you love and sometimes in order to hold on, you have to let go a little. I'm currently an MFA candidate at the Sewanee School of Letters and the fiction editor for Five South. My work has been published in HuffPost, Columbia Journal, The Normal School, Inscape, and elsewhere. My conference and workshop experience include the Kenyan Review Writing Workshop, Narratives, Art of the Story Workshop, and the Writer's Hotel, where I was a faculty assistant in 2020-2021. I have pasted the first five pages of the book below for your review. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Sincerely, name redacted. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, why don't you tell us what you thought about that query letter? I really liked the comp line. If running with scissors walked into a bar and met goodbye vitamin, this would be it. I love that. There's I talk about comps all the time and, and everybody asks me like, how do I write them in? You know, it's all about how they intersect and how they're in conversation with each other. And I thought that was a really nice, voicey, but accurate way to portray that. So bravo, well done for that. The next one I wanted to mention was, this happens a lot in queries. Everybody does this, but it's kind of one of my pet peeves. It's, it's this line, and then her world starts falling apart. <laughs> and then, the, you know, the query gets into, you know, a lot of the issues that, that 
happens with the book. We assume with all books, people's lives are generally normal until they're not, right? And people tend to write this in queries and it's just kind of one of my pet peeves. So if you can figure out another way to say that, I think that would be right. This is an example of a query that also layers on, you know, issue after issue after issue. And I believe that hard years exist, right? I think we've, a lot of people have been through, you know, the hardest year of their life, right? Where one thing is piled onto another is piled onto another. But in fiction, it does come off a little bit unlikely. And so plausibility is is very, is very key. I grabbed my copy of, of Donald Moss's Writing the Breakout Novel because I just wanted to emphasize, and, and he does in this book, how important plausibility is in an actual premise of a book. So I just want to read the, the little bit that he has in here. So it says, plausibility. When an author pitches a great story premise, almost always the first question that springs to mind, and I bet it is yours too, could this really happen? It's an odd question. Fiction is not life. And yet, for some reason, most readers, me included, need to feel that this story we are being presented has some basis in reality. And he kind of, you know, I'm not going to read this whole section to you, but it's just so important in fiction that we feel like it could happen, even if it's not necessarily going to happen to us. We believe that, you know, this is a tale about our world and, and our lives, and, and we're going to learn something about it. So it's very, very important that, that we think about plausibility when we're thinking about contemporary fiction. Okay, my other note is this person says they're working on a true crime novel. A true crime novel does not exist. True crime is true, therefore it's nonfiction. And then a novel is obviously fiction. And yeah, Cece, what do you think? I agree with your full analysis. I On the issue of like believability, I could not even agree more. I think it was Aristotle who said, a probable impossibility is to be preferred to an improbable possibilities or to a series of improbable possibilities. The crux behind it is this, like a man can fly. I can get on board with that. It's impossible, but fine. I'll believe that and then build me a world based on that. But like all of these improbable possibilities happening in a row, it just, it, it challenges believability. And we can suspend disbelief. We do this all the time in novels, but it's hard to convey something that's realistic. And this is supposed to be a contemporary realistic book when all of these things keep happening. I also had questions about like the causality of some of these sentences. So for example, her husband quits his job to follow his passion for solo, solar powered cars and her family members end up in the hospital one by one. Like, are these things linked? I don't think they are, but then I wasn't sure. And I guess with all this, these, all these things that lead up to the story, I'm confused about what is the inciting incident. I think the reason why this is happening is because the, the writer is trying to do her job really well and try to like make sure that we know that this, this uh, protagonist is under a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure is great. Good job. We, we want this. But perhaps you don't have to like spell out all these things that are happening and also perhaps reconsider the believability of all these things happening in a row and, and focus more on the inciting incident. I still don't know what it is. And maybe it's here. Maybe I just can't see it, but I think I would focus on that. And, uh, and so, something I'd just like to add as well, and something I tell my students is when you are torturing your character, because this is what we do, we say this and we torture them. You must never forget that the structure of a novel needs to feel like dominoes tipping over. One domino tipping over gets the next one going and the next one. So something that happens in chapter seven is as a result of all the things that kind of came before. Whereas if all of these random things happen to your character, that's not dominoes tipping over. It's not that one thing leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. It's just like all hell breaking loose and dominoes are coming at them from every side. So that's something that you need to keep in mind is that cause and effect the whole time as you as you up the stakes throughout the novel. Okay, Carly, would you like to dive into those opening pages for us? Yeah, there was two main things I wanted to mention with this one. So it's kind of presented as a story within a story. So the the narrator is saying, 
know, I've had a crazy year. I, uh, I thought I'd tell you about it and you could decide for yourself what you think. So we're presenting this again as a story within a story. And then we get a story within a story within a story when the the woman and her father are going are telling a story within the story within the story. And so I felt like that was a little too much of, of I don't know, the, the right metaphor, but the kind of like, you know, the little Russian dolls that you like packed within each other. I thought it was just a little bit too much of that. So I would probably not do so many layers of the story within a story in the first five pages, just ground us initially in the story within a story and, and start there. I do like it, but I but I thought we were doing it a little bit. The second major thing I wanted to say was there was just a couple instances where I just want to encourage, you know, and, and tons of people do this. I, I know I'm pointing this out in this in this um, sample, but there's a couple word sensitivity issues that I, that I wanted to point out. Number one is the word crazy. So this book opens with, I had a kind of crazy year. And generally the consensus among mental health advocates is that we don't use words like crazy because for obvious reasons with mental health kind of implications of that word and, and stigma and that sort of thing. So uh, there's a lot of other words I, I suggest that we use instead of the word crazy. Wild is one, bonkers, you know, there, there's tons of other words we could use instead of the word crazy. So I would just kind of, you know, make sure we, we think about that word and, and how we're using it and the implications of that. The second one is, and I know this is kind of colloquial at this point, but again, we want to be sensitive to it was the line, uh, yet the ones I felt sorry is for were the Wall Street kids I knew from college who were slaving away just to be disappointed. And I really would caution everybody, obviously, against using slaving away. Um, the word slave obviously has serious connotations. And I know that this person probably had good intentions, but it's just another word that we want to avoid. So that's uh, my, my two major notes. But I really thought the author did an excellent job of, of telling things without hitting us over the head. I really liked how in the second paragraph, she tells us that she's pregnant without telling she's pregnant. Like I thought that was beautiful. It says, um, I was sitting outside on the porch trying to get cool, steal my nerves for the C-section in 48 hours. She didn't say, I'm, you know, 40 weeks pregnant, ready to give birth. She said, stealing my nerves for my C-section in 48 hours. And then just moves on. My dad sat in the rocking chair to my left. I just thought that was really, really beautiful and really well done. So bravo to this author. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, what did you think? My first note is a matter of taste. And this is totally my taste. I don't like it when the breaking of the fourth wall is... Like I struggle with breaking the fourth wall to begin with, but when it does happen, I like it to be a little bit more subtle. And there's, you know, right in the first paragraph, she talks about like, this pretty much sums up the story. And I'm like, I don't want the story to be summed up for me. I want to be immersed in this scene and go on a journey with you. And again, this is a tasting. I think that a lot of people might enjoy it, but just for me, it, it doesn't work. There is definitely like a looking back vibe here. She starts a few of the sentences reflecting on it. Now, I think my dad was trying to distract me. The looking back vibe can work really well. It, it's a device when, when done right, it's amazing. One of my favorite novels of all time called Best Friends by Martha Moody is like that and it's perfection. Here though, I'm wondering, and I think it's still working here, but the, the main issue is that it relates to my second note, which is this. What am I supposed to be curious about? That's my question to the author. Lovely author who's listening to us. Why should I care about Beholden? That's the story her dad is telling. Her dad starts off, uh, starts this off like the conversation by saying, do you want to know about Aunt Norma? And she says, yes. And he goes, well, before I tell you about Aunt Norma, I have to tell you about Norma's dad. And then I think it's like a couple of pages later, she asks again, so what happened to Norma's dad? And then he goes, well, to know about Norma's dad, you have to know about my grandfather, Beholden. And then we go to learn about Beholden. I, I am seriously asking this. Why should we care about Beholden? Maybe there's a really good reason. And if so, 
awesome. We should find out about Beholden. Question one, does it have to be in the first five pages? Question two, maybe it might make sense to like connect the setup to Beholden without the dialogue because I do agree like with Carly's analysis about like the Russian dolls. It's a story within a story, within a story. And like we keep like like learning about these people. They're not even there. I have no idea what they're doing. If this is a family saga, maybe started in the past. And if it's not a family saga, if like her family history is connected to the inciting incident and it's connected to the plot, then perhaps wait a little bit before divulging it. Like maybe we have to know that she has a lot of money. This is something that's said, like her family's very wealthy. Cool. But that can be established in so many ways. Maybe this family money is like, I don't know, comes from like really objectionable things that happen in the past. And she feels cursed. I have no idea. I'm making this up in my head because that's what I do. And, but if that's the case, again, like tease us with that information. You don't need to get into the backstory right away, even if it's through dialogue. We do say, don't take us on a flashback. Don't do backstory. And maybe the author, I have no idea, maybe the author heard this and go, okay, so I'm going to put it in dialogue. It still doesn't work in dialogue. It's better. I, I appreciate the effort, but it still doesn't work in dialogue. I am not curious about Beholden. That would be my note. And if you want me to be curious, please give me a reason. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Thanks so much, Cece and Kali. Coming up next is our guest on today's episode. And just to let you know what we've got coming up, Carly and Cece will be running a webinar called Writing the Perfect First Five Pages, and that will be on the 15th of July at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Just to tell you a bit more about the course, literary agents are tasked with recognizing great books quickly, which is why the importance of the first five pages of a story cannot be overestimated. No matter the genre, the perfect five pages will draw your readers in from the very start and compel them to read on. If you would like to learn more about what the webinar will entail, head to Carly and Cece's Instagram pages where you can get more information and where you'll be able to register. CC is available for one-on-one meetings and written critiques via Manuscript Academy. You can search for that on manuscriptacademy.com, Cecilia Lira. Manuscript Academy is a year-round online writers conference, and you can make an appointment with CC for her to take a look at your first 10 pages, discuss your work, whatever the case may be is. I have various courses that will be coming up. Please go to my website, biancamaray.com, to have a look at that schedule and to make any bookings. I'll be tackling different elements of craft and doing deep dives into them over sessions that run for three hours. These sessions will be taped, so you will be able to watch them even if you aren't in the Eastern time zone. And then finally, we have started a Kofi page. There are a lot of costs associated with running a podcast. So if you are able to make a donation to us there at Kofi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the web site under biancamaray.com under the podcast section. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
It really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a former literary agent who provides consulting and developmental editing services to writers of all categories and genres, working on children's book projects from picture book to young adult and all kinds of trade market literature, including fantasy, sci-fi, romance, and memoir. She holds an MFA in creative writing and has worked at Chronicle Books, the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, and Movable Type Management. She has been blogging at Kidlet since 2009. Her book, Writing Irresistible Kidlet, a writing reference guide for middle grade and young adult writers, is available from Writer's Digest Books. It's my pleasure to welcome Mary Cole, founder and executive editor of The Good Story Company. Hi, Mary. Welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I stumbled across your website. So your website 
website is The Good Story Company. And on there, I found the most amazing resource, which is called the Manuscript Submission Cheat Sheet. And for our listeners out there, it is absolutely amazing. It really is a cheat sheet of everything you need to do ahead of submitting your manuscript to an agent. There's a whole checklist. It's a goals questionnaire, agent and publisher considerations to factor in a submission plan, research resources, submissions, rules and considerations, an asset checklist. It's just amazing. And it is absolutely free. So if you're thinking that this sounds good or like a lot and what's the catch? No catch. I just want to get you in front of it. It is so amazing. I was going through this and I was like, I wish I had this resource when I was querying all those many, many years ago. And this is why, obviously, I was super excited to get Mary onto the show so that she could share some of this information with you. Obviously, after you listen to this, you have got to go to the Good Story Company. You have to sign up, you get the checklist and you download it and you treat it like the gold that it is. But in in the meantime, Mary, if you could just take us through, I want to focus today specifically on pitches and log lines. And then in terms of the meat of the query, because we get a lot of queries on the show and, you know, writers write brilliantly. They write novels. That's what they're good at. And when it comes to selling themselves or selling their work or suddenly summarizing it or, you know, putting it in like an elevator pitch, they just really struggle to do it. So what advice have you got for us? Firstly, what is the difference between a pitch and a log line and what do they need to entail? That is a great question. And a lot of writers, you're right, they get very confused or intimidated on these topics. And there's a lot of room for growth, which is part of why I uh, put this resource together. And uh, similarly to your show, I do these query workshops where I do a webinar, I share my screen, we kind of go through and there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of room for error. And I think that's part of what contributes to this idea that the pitch, uh, the query are so intimidating. So pitch, and I I was a literary agent for five years. So this is kind of where I'm coming from, having had my own slush pile, having listened to a lot of pitches in person and virtually um, in the past 10 years. So a pitch can be literally anything that communicates your project, right? And so a lot of people get very confused on, well, isn't, is the pitch a query? Is the query a pitch? Is the logline a pitch? So other people may have different, slightly different Differing uh, definitions, which is only to add to the confusion. But how I think of it is, and this might be helpful, you can't hear the same information enough times. So a pitch is anything that conveys your project to somebody else with the goal of, so we have to look at our intention, with the goal of getting them interested in it, getting them the shortest, most clean and concise version of your project without any rambling, like I'm doing right now, without any extraneous details details. However, you deliver that information can be called a pitch, whether it's a query letter, where whether it's a Twitter pitch, uh, you do one of the pitch wars on, on Twitter, whether it's a log line or an elevator pitch, whether it's a sit down virtual or in-person appointment with somebody one-on-one during a conference, whether it's just a casual, Hey, what's your book about, man? You know, Oh, it's blah, blah, blah. That can all be a pitch. Now, when we start to dissect these different levels of pitch that you may have heard about, that is where some other terms come to the party. So a log line or an elevator pitch, this can sometimes go either 
either it's the only thing you get to deliver. The term elevator pitch comes from this idea that you are stuck in an elevator with a CEO from Disney or something, and you only have those 30 seconds that your time overlaps to deliver the perfect description of your project. And then they say, oh, send it to me. So that is this one or two sentence summary of what your project is. And it is basically, you know, uh, Black Mirror meets Freaky Friday or whatever. So it can be done as a meets comparison if you have two comps, or it can be a boy who has defeated the biggest evil in the world now comes back to fight that evil or who inadvertently defeated. So that's Harry Potter. I've been reading it with my kids. We watched the first movie yesterday. That's the only thing on my mind right now. Or a man stuck on Mars has to fight to get back home. Something like that, where we have just a really, really quick summary where the central theme is on display. Ideally, you get a character in there, maybe a setting. Um, I neglected the wizarding setting from the Harry Potter pitch, but it would be, you know, a wizard who inadvertently defeated the the most evil sorcerer in the world now has to fight him face to face or something like that. So there, there's the good and evil. That's the big thematic vein that runs through the entire Harry Potter series. Of course, there's a lot of fun and games and that's where the wizarding piece comes in. And then of course, with the oh, the title, is the title just Mars? Um, the last Martian or something? No. What is no, it? it's just the Martian, isn't it? Martian, right. Martian. So that, yeah. uh, Matt, the Matt Damon movie, which came from a book is, you know, uh, an astronaut gets stuck on, on the Mars base and has to figure out his way home before time and resources run out. So there you're really, you have the setting, you have the character, the central problem. So that log line is pretty much all you'll get a chance to convey about your story if you are limited to the elevator pitch or the one or two sentence log line. Now, how it is used is either at a conference, in a pitching opportunity, a Twitter pitch. That's about a great length for a log line. If you want to challenge yourself to the 140 characters, our tweets can be longer now, but it's still a good exercise to get it to get the details of your story in. But it's basically the same or similar to the premise. That's another word that causes a lot of consternation with writers, right? What is a premise? How do I find my premise? What if I don't have a premise? What if it's just, you know, in children's books, we hear a lot of, it's a coming of age story where she just grapples with coming of age issues. And then this sends the writer into a tailspin of there's nothing sexy about it. It's just, you know, there's nothing really that differentiates the pitch. We can talk about that in a little bit, but it's basically this tiny line you can use in the beginning of your query letter. That's where a lot of people do put a log line. They put it right at the beginning, either that or the personalization as a way to bring that agent in. Now, if you are a writer that feels that their premise doesn't really lend itself very well to a log line, it could be that you skip the log line in your query letter. Nobody is necessarily going to hang you out to dry for not including the log line, but the log line really does work well for these higher concept premises that we talk about. And so if you are not naturally finding one, unless somebody specifically requests one as part of their query form, their query letter, the Twitter pitch contest, whatever opportunity you're participating in, you could cleverly just omit <laughs> the log line from your query because not everything lends itself to that Hollywood treatment of having that elevator pitch that well, long. Yeah. And so 
certainly, you know, people who are writing in literary fiction, anything that's more character driven than it is like genre driven or plot based, that doesn't lend itself well to that kind of logline. So again, it would depend very much on the genre you're writing in. And like you say, whether it's a high concept premise or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could, you could make an argument that literary fiction, women's fiction can have its own loglines. Well, I guess Leanne Moriarty is high concept because all of her work is driven kind of by secrets and kind of these society high stakes interactions that all of the characters have. So that's a terrible example, actually. Now, I would say that you can have a logline in literary fiction. For example, something that comes to mind is um, Pulitzer winning All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And that is a very historical setting. It's set during World War II. A blind girl must reckon with the destruction of uh, her small town in the French countryside or on the French coast. And we, we don't really get a sense of kind of the full story there, but we do get enough where whether the setting is a character, whether the historical piece is a character, whether it's something about the character that makes them distinct, you know, her blindness really factors into the the plot of the story and sort of her development as a character in the story. So even these kind of lower premise or more literary types of works can have their own attributes that you can convey in logline form. The reason that we do the logline, the reason that we include what we include in the logline or the elevator pitch is so that somebody just coming into it can get boom, 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 like the three most important bullet points about our story right away. Because imagine, so an agent is going through 300 query letters in their one sitting. They've just poured themselves a big iced coffee, you know, or if it's in the, (laughs) if it's in the evening, maybe a bottle of wine to sort of get through their queries. So they're sitting down, they're like, oh, you know, stretching their backs. Oh, this is going to be a long one. There are 300 of these things today. So how are you going to jump right out and convey what your story is about? And really that is the demystified purpose of the log line rather than to intimidate you and make you cry. It's okay. World War II, we have this really interesting dynamic going on with a blind girl and uh, there, you know, it's kind of on this interesting line where it's the it's occupied France. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, and now I know exactly where to put this story in my head. And now the question becomes, am I interested in those things? Is that something that I would like to hear more about or represent? And so you have a way of catching their interest immediately, or you know right away, or sorry, they know right away that this is maybe something that's not up their alley. That makes it easier to sort through your submission. And that's not to say that agents are never surprised by what they end up taking on. I hear a lot of, you know, in my personal experience and with um, my peers in the industry, a lot of people say, I, I wasn't even looking for this. And then it found me and I was so compelled by it. So agents always leave the door open to be surprised, but at least they have the fundamentals of your story to consider right away. Wonderful. So, okay. So that's the log 
logline. So in the pitch and logline section of your document, summarizing your work, you say to write a compelling pitch, you need to think about the following. So you give us kind of five bullet points that need to be included in the pitch. Can you take us through that? So to get really all the information that you need out of a pitch, and this is this goes also for the logline and then also for the sort of expanded heart of the query, which we'll talk about, who your character is. And especially if yours does fall into that category of more literary, more coming of age, where there's no sort of obvious genre or kind of high concept uh, element at work, who your character is, is really going to drive what the story is, because it's either kind of plot forward or character forward, ideally both. (laughs) But if you're in one of those quote unquote quieter categories, the character really does take the day. Ideally though, they also have something that they face. So the second ingredient in a solid pitch would be the biggest challenge they face, which could come from who the character is going back to bullet point one, or it could come from something external to them, something about their world, something about uh, a situation they've gotten themselves into, or that has fallen into their lap, or that they're trying to make happen. The personal stakes of this challenge. So what happens if they fail? Um, And then anything interesting about your setting or premise, which is usually more relevant to our genre fiction, you know, our fantasy, sci-fi, other stories that are set in interesting worlds, but even our historical with all the light we cannot see. It's occupied France in World War II. And so that is what makes that particular story interesting or worth noting. And so basically it's your character up against the biggest challenge that they face in the story. Stakes, if you can work those in there. I did that in my Harry Potter example. You know, now now he's a wizard and he has to fight the most evil sorcerer um, known to wizard kind, but he has to do it intentionally this time rather than, you know, just being a baby and uh, scaring off you know who. So with that, it's who your character is, young wizard, the biggest challenge that they face, this big battle of good and evil, the personal stakes of this challenge. Obviously, if it's the most evil sorcerer, he's gunning for you. That is going to be bad news for you if you don't prevail. And then the wizarding world, um, which is mentioned in the pitch, would add to that anything interesting about your setting or premise. Of course, now wizards and witches and magic and fantasy, they are uh, very prevalent. But back in the day, imagine hearing this pitch, it would have been a little bit more attention grabbing in 1997. (laughs) Wonderful. Give us another two examples of great pitches, Mary. Okay. So in a world where aliens rule the planet, the last remaining earthlings (laughs) must use ancient powers they just discovered to keep the human race alive. So that is your example of just, you know, the, the earth is overrun with aliens. That is the interesting thing that's going on. The character is the last of a dying breed. They must use something that they just discovered, which to me says they don't necessarily know how to use those powers yet. And uh, the stakes couldn't be higher. It's the extinction of the human race. And then this is a historical, I would say, as Ingrid fights for a woman's right to vote, she falls in love across the picket lines. How does she stray to her, stay true to her cause and her heart? And so there I'm imagining maybe two women coming across this issue that they're both on different sides of, falling in love, something that's a little bit interesting for the time period, given the restrictions on women, the restrictions 
restrictions on a woman's right to vote, the restrictions on sexuality. So I thought something like that could be a more literary approach to, you know, this historical, which is more to do with matters of the heart. But still, there's some political action at the center of it and pretty high stakes as well. Wonderful. All right. So you've got something in the document called the Heart of the Query, Writing the Query Meet. And this is something that we've seen coming across in some of the submissions that we get is that it's kind of a whole bunch of paragraphs as writers just try and fit everything in, or they just give you like two lines because it's just too overwhelming to fit everything in. So could you tell us in terms of writing the query meet, what are the important things to include? If if you were looking at it as a formula, what are the things that you are heading to, having to add and subtract and equalize to get this formula right? Absolutely. And so you are going to see a lot of the same ingredients. You are going to see who is your character. And I'm going to give you another ancient example here, but this is because everybody knows these stories. So it's very easy to uh, speak about them. But who is your character? Edward Cullen is your typical teen vampire. Good looks, fast car, no pulse. Um, I tried to inject a little bit of humor into it, but uh, that, (laughs) so it doesn't necessarily go with a vampire story or a dark story, but if it is appropriate to your story and to your voice, it's perfectly okay to go ahead and go into a little bit of that voice in the query, that tone, that humor. What is the strange thing going on in his or her life that throws everything off kilter and launches the story? That's going to be the second bullet point. Our novelists will recognize this as the inciting incident. It's when your character goes from their normal to their new normal, and it completely throws everything um, out of whack. So then he meets Bella Swan. What or who do they want most in the world? Now, the reason that I really like to include this element is because desire is universal. And it also tells me that your story has as its backbone, a character who is going to be proactive, who's going to be pursuing something, who wants something, who is dynamic, you know, a character who just sits there and has things fall into their lap, or who is taken on this ride by the plot may or may not necessarily be as compelling as a character who is sort of making their own inroads and advocating for themselves. And they have something that they're driven by. And so for the first time, Edward wants a human being more than anything, and he wants her alive. So there we get, so we have the character, the inciting incident, their objective or motivation, maybe both. The objective is what they want. The motivation is why they want it. And I think if we were to go even deeper into this, we would say nurturing his growing humanity or nurturing some uh, (laughs) reservations about his lifestyle and his family's status quo, Edward falls in love with a human being for the first time and surprises himself when he wants her alive, that sort of thing. So you could get even deeper there into the character, what is going on with them externally, what is going on with them internally, and how it sort of bounces off the inciting incident that they're experiencing. Who or what is in the way of them getting what they want? Their obstacle. Our novelists will recognize all of these terms that we've sort of been tracking in our own work. And if you know those things, if you've written from an outline, if you've written with those things in mind, the query letter is actually very plug and play. So Edward's bloodlust could drive him to either kill her or turn her into a monster like himself. So Edward has fallen in love with this human. He wants this human alive. He does not want to risk turning her into a monster because he's starting to see his family himself as a bit of a monster. He is sort of getting out of the fold and seeing what 
else is out there and this human is out there that he really uh, is starting to fall in love with, the last thing he wants to do is drag her back into the fold, at least initially as we're getting into the story. And then as you'll see in the log line bullet points, the stakes return. So what is at stake? No vampire pun intended. Of course, I love a bad pun. I can't help myself. If the character <laughs> doesn't get what they want, thank you for the pity laugh. Um, if Edward doesn't get Bella or worse, if he hurts her, he'll be alone forever, literally. So in here, I've added some elements that you will not see in this example, just as written in this cheat sheet. So I've added his family status quo, him sort of reflecting and seeing himself as a bit of a monster. But you'll notice that whatever I've added dovetails into the central journey of, I don't know who I am anymore. And that's complicated by me meeting this human being. She's supposed to be just food for me, the enemy, but I'm starting to doubt all of that. And then you can sort of work in some of that family drama, because if you know the Twilight franchise, the group of vampires, and then later the group of werewolves, all of these characters are really, really important. But as you said, we have writers who are submitting queries that just have all of these different elements in them. They're two pages long, which is too long. They act more like a synopsis or details are mentioned that aren't necessarily relevant in the grand scheme of things. What I have tried to do when I have inserted details here into this example query me is everything has to sort of reflect off the core of the story, which in this writing is really Edward fighting his nature, right? Fighting who he is and trying to figure out what that means now that he is in love with this human, you know, can he go back to his family? Can he, oh my goodness, introduce her to his family? You know, should he leave forever? You know, these big high stakes choices that he has made as a result of the inciting incident, which is the thing that happened to kick the whole story off. All of those things ideally weave together. And if there's something in your query that is floating around, it's not necessary to our understanding of that story core, I would maybe leave it on the cutting room floor. If it is not absolutely necessary for my understanding of what the story is, it's fluff. You don't need it. I would much rather have a tighter query that sort of follows this backbone than a query that pulls in and, oh yeah, there was this guy in Forks um, that helped fix up her truck or whatever the case may be. You know, these random details that don't necessarily stick to this central, very focused uh, heart of the story, which is and, also part of your query. Right. And the heart of that centers so much around conflict, because remember that when you're writing a novel, you need to have a lot of conflict and conflict comes in all different shapes and sizes. It could be inner conflict. Somebody's struggling with some inner conflict as Mary just referenced with, with Edward. It could be interpersonal conflict, one person against another. It could be person a uh, person against society, against nature, against the supernatural. There are all of these things, but that is what most stories boil down to is conflict, which means you have to give us the central conflict in that pitch. Everything that you give us has to resolve around what that central conflict is. And you keep bringing it back to that as Mary has just indicated. 
Mary, we're pretty much out of time. It has been so amazing chatting with you. Could you just tell us for those who are interested in your services, could you just give us a quick overview of what services you offer and where people can go to to find more information or to reach out to you? Yes, thank you so much. So as you mentioned, the umbrella company under which all of my stuff happens is Good Story Company, goodstorycompany.com. And if you go there right away above the fold will be this submission cheat sheet. You can sign up for the email newsletter, newsletter, which is also packed with tips for writers. Everything I do is basically to work with writers, to educate writers, to help you navigate down this path toward publication. And which is very much why I was excited to come onto the show here. But Good Story Company, we have a YouTube channel. We have inspirational quotes on Instagram. We have our own podcast, the Good Story Podcast. You'll find my editorial services there, as well as uh, those of several of my colleagues who've worked with me for years. And the newest thing we just launched last week is called Pub Deets. It is a daily digest, kind of like the skim of the publishing news that impacts writers, news that you can actually use. So you don't spend four hours on Twitter every day looking for that publishing, those pub deets, if you will. You can just get what you need, get out and get back to your writing. So all that and more can be had at goodstorycompany.com. Thank you, Mary. Wow. What we've had a jam pack session. There's been so much. I think most of our listeners will have to go back, listen again, jot down notes uh, and get that cheat sheet. It is really, really invaluable. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure being with you today. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.